patience. We're going to dive right in this morning. Today is the first day in Holy Week. It is Palm Sunday. Our passage for Palm Sunday is going to be the one of the traditional passages in Luke's Gospel. So grab your Bible, Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 28 through 44. Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. Today is the first day of Holy Week. Uh, we are not getting bored or sick of the traditional teachings of this season. Of this season. Right? At Renovation, you're going to get this. You're going to get the centrality of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus. You're going to get it constantly. We're not going to stop talking about that because we've moved on to something more profound or more interesting uh, in this time of year. So here we are again. You need reminded. You can't get enough of this. Amen? You can't get enough of the work in the person of Jesus Christ. So here we are again. I can't remember what gospel we did last year, but we kind of transitioned from gospel to gospel each year. And this year we are in the gospel of Luke, chapter 19, 28 through 44. Listen to what it says. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. And surround you. And hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of God, and all of God's people said, Amen. I don't know how much interaction you've had with the Gospel of Luke in your years as a follower of Jesus and in your reading of the Bible, but if you dive into the Gospel of Luke and you look at it, even a cursory reading, you're going to get a rhythm in the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. It was actually quite simple. 
He has a rhythm where he is teaching, right? Jesus was a teacher, and his content was always the kingdom of God, right? Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. He did so in parables, and in speaking in parables about the kingdom of God, he was doing so to clarify, and as we understand the purpose of the parables, oftentimes to mystify, right? The people were hearing Jesus' teaching, they were confused, they didn't quite get it, and all of this teaching seemed to flip on the people's heads their expectations of what the kingdom of God would be like, okay? So people had expectations of the people of God. Jesus came to teach, and he taught in a way that seemed to flip their expectations about what the kingdom of God would be. So he was a teacher. But on the other hand, you see in the ministry of Jesus, not just teaching, but you see healing, right? He has a message, and at the very same time, he is miraculous, right? He is healing people. He's doing unspeakable, unthinkable, unimaginable things from a human fleshly perspective, like raising the dead. Jesus has a message. He's a teacher, and he's a healer. That's the pattern in the Gospel of Luke, okay? And we see that pattern in Luke's account of the church, that the apostles are doing the same thing, right? They're preaching, teaching, and they're healing. This revelation of the kingdom of God in this preaching about it, and then there's this, this authentication of it, right? You can trust and believe in my message because look at the works that come with that message, right? So Jesus has this rhythm. But if you look a little bit deeper, a little bit closer at the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is teaching and he's healing, you're going to see something else. Movement, right? Progression. Geographic movement, actually. You see, Jesus, three years, his ministry is mostly in the region of Galilee, right? And progressively, he's making his way from Galilee, and where is he headed? He's headed to Jerusalem. You know your Bibles well, right? He's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed from the surrounding region, and he's on his way to the city. And as he's teaching about the kingdom of God, as he's healing to authenticate the coming of the kingdom of God, he is also telling the people and his disciples something that, that was just absolutely inconceivable to them. On three occasions, as he's approaching the city of Jerusalem, he says something that is shocking to their ears, especially given their expectations of the kingdom of God. If you look back at Luke 18, right, the disciples and the people thought that Jesus, as he's going to Jerusalem, would bring the kingdom of God, very important word, immediately. Right? That Jesus would show up, he would defeat Rome, he'd remove all oppression, he'd take the throne, and Israel would be restored to its power, and peace would be throughout the land. Immediately. Are you following with me? Good. But what Jesus says is that we're going up to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. He gives a prerequisite of the kingdom to come. He says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, he will rise again. Inconceivable that he, the king, would suffer 
and die at the hands of his enemies. How could Jesus rule, be the king, and at the same time be killed as a criminal? Inconceivable. Their expectations are being turned upside down. And so here we are, verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. We're no longer living in the realm of prediction as we start Holy Week. The time has come. He's headed up to Jerusalem. So here they are, going up to the city. And as he's approaching the city, we see that Jesus is in complete control of all the events surrounding his approach. That Jesus is one that has authority and control orchestrating the events that are about to take place. Look at what he says, verse 29 he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sends his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you. You're going to see a colt there. No one's ever sat on it. Untie it, bring it here. And seeing ahead and having foresight and knowledge, because he is sovereign and he's in control of all the things that are taking place, he says, listen, when somebody is asking you why you're taking it, all you have to say is this, the Lord has need of it. And the text goes on to say that that's exactly what is happening. That's exactly how it takes place. The disciples go, they obey his command, and they find it. There it is. And the guy asks him, what are you doing? And they say, oh, the Lord has need of it. You see, you look at these events surrounding his approach to Jerusalem, and you're immediately confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ is in complete control of his approach to Jerusalem. The situation at hand, he, he sees, he knows, he directs, he guides, and then ultimately he stakes claim to what would be on the surface somebody else's property. Why would he do that? Because he's in control. He has authority. He's directing these things. But again, we must look deeper. We must look closer because it's not just a situational authority that Jesus has as he's approaching Jerusalem. He does not just have authority and control in this particular situation. As we look at the passage, and we see that Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, to think deeper, to look closer, is to recognize that long ago a prophet had said that when the king comes to assume his kingdom, he would stand on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4. And not only that, in Zechariah 9.9, it says that your king is coming to you, riding on a colt, on a donkey. We see that Jesus is in so much more control than just the situation. That what is taking place is the fulfillment of prophecy. And that what you see Jesus doing is showing that he has authority over all of human history. To stake claim over the cult is, is just a small way to say, look, Jesus has staked a claim over all things, over all times, over all situations. He sees it the way that it is because Jesus Christ has authority. He's sovereign. He is orchestrating events to fulfill his promises 
and to keep God's purposes from being fulfilled. He wants them to be fulfilled. And I think that is such a profound truth for us today. Right? We see here that Jesus does not just have authority over this situation and that situation or this detail and that detail. As we think about our lives and and the things that we face and the chaos that ensues, we think about our parenting challenges, we think about our marital struggles, we think about our financial struggles, we think about health concerns that we have, whatever situation we have, or even the good things, right, the other side of the equation. We think about the world in which we live where it seems to be hostility and chaos everywhere. The people that have control, right, are doing so in such a way to wreak havoc upon the world. But here's the wonderful truth that we see here. That no matter what situation we find ourselves in, Jesus, it, it, Jesus takes claim to it. Because Jesus takes claim to all things in all times over all people. And that no matter what we're facing in the moment, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus' authority and His control, that everything is in submission to Him and His purposes and His ways. That we do not need to question, will God make good of this situation? Because Christ is bringing all things to His glorious purpose and keep His promise. That's a wonderful truth for us today, that Jesus control is assurance for us his authority is assurance for us who trust in him because we know that whatever we're facing in the moment is ultimately living in submission to his rule and his authority someone say amen to that that it does not have ultimate authority over our lives but jesus does it does not stake a claim on who we are and how we are to live But Jesus does. That's good news for a screw-up mess like me. That Jesus has authority over all things. And he is directing all things in redemptive history to carry out his purposes in submission to the Father's will. Isn't that great? That is awesome. And so what we see here is the fulfillment of this says that Jesus is this long-expected king that has come to his people. Jesus is our king, the one that was promised, the one that was predicted long ago in generations past that would come to us to save us. This is Jesus. He is that long-expected king who's staking claim to our lives. And while that's a powerful application for us, man, that is a difficult truth for us, is it not? The idea that someone else would come into human history, uh, would come into the world and stake claim over all things and all people for all times, to claim to have that kind of authority that nothing in the world ever made, nothing in our lives, no decision, no relationship that we have, nothing is outside of the realm of His authority means what? That that calls for our submission. 
Our whole submission, all that we are fully submitted to who He is as our King. And that is a difficult truth for us in American culture. After all, isn't our history one that records a people that said no thanks to the king and left Europe and came here because we wanted the power to be in the midst of the people? We didn't want a sovereign, right? One of the classic uh, phrases of the revolution was no taxation without represent representation, right? Well, there was another one. And one that may point directly to your heart. We serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. You see, there's something inside the American mindset that says nope to a king. And yet Jesus makes that claim. That's what makes it difficult for us because we serve no sovereign here. Granted, we live in a postmodern world 200 plus later, where people think, yeah, there is authority, it's called me. Authority is inside of me. And there is no, uh, because of autonomy, there is no way for another person to stake a claim, anyone, on me except for me. So back your junk up and just stay away. And don't try to take claim over me. And this po- have you not read? Who we are. We are a postmodern people who reject authority except for the authority that's inherently inside of me. That may be your struggle here today. But here's the thing we can go cultural, we can get all cute with the philosophies. I think the biggest thing about this, what makes it so difficult, is that it's just anti human. We don't want to submit. We don't like anyone to stake a claim over anything in our lives. We don't want a king, do we? That that's just human, to reject authority. We want to call the shots. We want to be our own boss. And yet Jesus comes as the king, staking claim and calling us to submit to his authority. But as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, we see he also does not so just in authority, but on the other side, humility. Right? I asked the kids last night, we're sitting down to dinner, as I always manipulate our dinner time on Saturdays to gain more insight into the sermon. I said, hey guys, imagine a king is returning from battle. What would that king be riding on if they came back from battle victoriously back into their city or their, or, or their home? And one of my children said, a horse. And I said, good, why a horse? And they said, because it's strong and Fast. Right? A king coming to his people, you would expect them to come in valiantly on a horse. And then another one of my kids said, a limo. <laughs> right? Because they maybe just watched the inauguration where the new leader comes riding in a limo. I said, why a limo? Because it's so impressive, they said. Shiny. Right? You see, When kings assume their authority and receive their kingdom, they typically come with uh, the the chest puffed out and the valiance of a victor, and they come with pride, and they come to flex their muscles. 
But the passage shows us today that Jesus assumes his kingdom, approaches his city on a donkey, a colt, in a, in a, in a way that we would never expect for a leader to approach his city claiming victory, staking his claim over his city. But you see, that's the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus is a humble king. And while he is a, has authority, universal, absolute authority, he is directing all things. While he is that kind of king, at the very same time, he is a humble king. And that the idea of humility is one where he comes as servant. Jesus has come uh, as a servant king. He's come to give of himself. He's come to, not to be served, right, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom payment for many. This is the kind of ruler that Jesus is. And if we look across our world today, it takes us, I don't care where you fall in the political spectrum, have fun trying to find an, a leader that has authority and humility. But not so Jesus. Jesus has authority and humility. And that's why we can trust him. Because his motives are pure for us. Amen? Jesus is not distorted and self-centered in his view of who he is and how he relates to us as king. He has our best interests in mind. Our rescuing. Our redemption. Not our oppression. Our rescuing. And so Jesus comes on a donkey, as Zechariah emphasizes, humble. He has rule and authority. He stakes claim over all of our lives, all of history, and yet he comes staking that claim in a posture of humility. That's how Jesus takes his authority and uses it. We see this in John 13, right? Where he's in the upper room with his disciples. And the text says, John talks about the fact that he knew who he was. And he knew where he was returning, back to heaven with the Father. And he knew that all things had been given to him. And what does he do with that authority? Well, John says that he got up from the dinner table. He grabbed a towel. And he began to wash the disciples' feet understanding his authority, he begins to step out and serve, approach the disciples in a posture of humility. That's how Jesus responds to authority. We can trust him. We can give our lives to him. And so he goes on, and the people are worshiping him, right? They're singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The disciples are singing for all the mighty works they had seen. They are worshiping him. They are giving him, this is Psalm 118, which was understood to be their expectations of the Messiah. This meant for them, this was the Messiah. This was the king. Receive him as such. Again, confused, distorted in their expectations. In a, in a few chapters, we're going to see his disciples deny him and betray him and no longer be singing but running and deserting him. And so everyone will basically walk away and reject Jesus in the moment when they see the way in which he is assuming his throne. But for now, they sing. 
But the Pharisees say, oh, no, 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 based on their expectations of the coming king and kingdom. No, no, no. Hey, teacher, we know who you really are. Rebuke your disciples. Tell them to quit it. You're not the king. You're not the Messiah. You're not deserving of such praise and adoration. You don't deserve our allegiance. You're just a teacher. Rebuke your disciples. And some of you here today may have resigned to the fact that that's all that Jesus is. He's just a great teacher, nice guy, he's done some cool things, but he's not really worthy of your worship and your allegiance. But here's what happens. He says, listen, verse 40, if these were silent, even the rocks would cry out. What he's basically saying is this, if I were to stop them from singing, I would still receive the worship and adoration that comes to me and that I deserve. So today, if you don't see Jesus as king, worthy of your submission, if you don't see Jesus as king, worthy of your trust, based on his motives in your life, guess what? If you don't worship him, if you don't see him for who he is, he will still receive the worship and the praise that is due his name. Even the rocks, inanimate, lifeless objects, there will be praise for King Jesus. And our rejection of it, our refusal to submit to it, will not change it one iota. Even the rocks will praise His name. It's funny, not to go comical here, but every time I hear, read that, I think of my AG buddy growing up in high school. Every once in a while, he would just go, not going to let those rocks out praise me. You want to do it? No, nobody wants to do it. Not going to let those rocks out praise me, man, right? Even the rocks are singing. Yeah, that was my life at Faith Heritage. Adam knows. Those are the kind of conversations we had, right? It's really kind of sad. <laughs> Not going to let those rocks out praise me. But see, Jesus is going to get the worship that is due. The question becomes, will he get it from you? Will you submit your life to him? Will you trust in his authority and in his leadership? That's the question you need to wrestle with today. Submission to this king or rejection of this king? And so as the disciples are singing and the Pharisees are rebuking, Jesus enters into the city. Or he actually draws near and sees this city. And the passage says, just like John 11.35, he wept over it. How can Jesus weep in the midst of song? It's kind of an irony, right? They're singing, praising, worshiping. Based on a, a different set of expectations that Jesus recognizes it are so distorted that they can't really see what he's accomplishing. They can't really see how salvation is being achieved. They don't really understand or know what the kingdom of God is really going to be and how it will be inaugurated and, and begun in the world. They don't really see it. And so he sees that, that, that really knowing that this city would reject him and they don't see him, they don't understand him. He says this, I think, in such powerful fashion. Would that you, even you, of all people, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You see, they craved peace. 
such an oppressed people. And I know there are individuals in this room that are longing and they're craving for a real, abiding, eternal peace. Because deep inside of them, they're anxious. They're empty. There's, they don't know how to maybe articulate what the issue is, but they know this, that life is not the way it's supposed to be. There's something substantively missing. We look in our world, and I think we recognize that. All our attempts to rally the human troops to do better and to try harder, there's still something substantively missing in our world. And that for whatever reason, no matter how hard we try, to, to, we erect peace poles and put all the coexist things on our cars, and we think, man, if we just try harder to establish peace in our world and just tolerate one another, then we'll, we'll have the peace that we long for. But when Jesus comes to the city, he says, would that you, even you, on this day, would know the things that make for peace. And I think that if he were to come into the, our world today, he would look at our world today and say the same thing. Would that you, even you, would know that which makes for peace. Because we look for it in all the wrong places. In the ways in which the world would offer us superficial peace. Peace that just makes me feel a little bit better about myself. But the peace that Jesus is talking about is the peace that says everything in our existence is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And that's you knowing and worshiping and trusting and submitting to King Jesus. That's the way things are supposed to be. And Christ has come into the world as the King who serves. And we understand that Good Friday is a remember, remembrance of the way in which he served, right? He came to suffer and die. He died in our place for our sins so that we could know true peace. Inconceivable to us that peace would come through the death of the Son of God. Inconceivable to us that victory would come through defeat. Inconceivable to us that the kingdom of God would be ushered in to our world and our lives through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Inconceivable to us. And authors every day are putting new books on the New York Times best-selling list that say, Fewy to the atonement. No thank you. The sacrifice of Jesus is cosmic child abuse. We're not really interested in a God like that. So we reject that as the way to peace. Even musicians that we love to put in our MP3 player. Got to be careful there generationally. Our phone. Maybe I. Does MP3 even exist anymore? CD? You guys got the eight track? Dan? Dan's laughing now. Spotify playlist. Okay. Thanks for. That joke took me where I have no idea what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> what was I talking about? I'm serious. Thank you. Thank you. They said, we don't believe in a God. We don't believe in a God that would kill his own son to save us. And this is the very thing that makes for peace. The suffering 
who died for our sins so that we might know him. But people go on continuing to reject him, refusing to submit to him. And the sad reality is, and again, whether or not we want to receive it or not, that those who reject and don't see and who are blind to the truth that Jesus has come into the world as the servant king to save them and that he is the only way to peace, they have no other expectation than judgment. That's another difficult truth for us today. Right? That the king will judge those who reject him. But the truth is, and I'll land the plane here, the truth is, is that Jesus in this moment, in this time, has come on a donkey. But there will be a day when he comes on his horse. Revelation tells the story of not the humble Jesus, but the Jesus of unimaginable glory who comes and he rides with his army. He will slay all that is wicked. And by the way, for those of us who are oppressed, that is the gospel. See, we're not used to that in America. We're doing just fine. But we don't realize the depth of our slavery and the oppression that sin has caused in our lives because we've made ourselves feel better with other things. We've got distractions to keep us from seeing the dip deeper issues in our lives and in our hearts. But the truth is today that the, the way to set you free and the way for you to know peace is to submit and trust and worship King Jesus. Because Jesus is the King who has come to us. And He is worthy of our submission. And He is worthy of our trust and our worship. If we don't know Jesus as the king, we don't know Jesus at all, do we? Tim Keller says that. He says you can't know Jesus Christ unless you see him as king. Not leader, not president, not secretary of this or that, king. He can't change your life, transform your life, come into your life, unless you know him as king. You can't even understand who he is unless you understand him as king. Do you see him as king? Do you know that this moment was the time where the king came into the world to humbly serve you in your rescue and in your salvation? Let me be very clear. Place your hope, your allegiance... Wave the white flag of surrender to King Jesus today. Whether you have been a Christian for your whole life or for the first time you're seeing him for who he really is, put up the white flag of surrender and say, Jesus, I submit to you as king. You have rightfully staked claim over every aspect of my life and I will stop rejecting it in excusing my way out of it. And oh boy, will your salvation provide for me the peace in my heart and in my world that I long for. Would you, even you know, the things that make 
for peace. Jesus does. He's the king that has come to you. Let's pray. All hail King Jesus. All hail King Jesus. Confess our stubbornness and our stiff neck that wants to rule and reign over our lives. And yet today we are confronted with the kind of king that has come to us to save us. And that's Christ. He has authority comes in humility and he brings for us peace. Jesus you are the prince of peace. I pray that every person in this room would know you as the prince of peace. And I pray that you would continue to break our hearts for a world that doesn't see you. Grateful for serve Syracuse and Adam and Missio and North Syracuse Baptist, our partners that when we see our city, we weep. We're broken. Because we know that there is no hope for peace without Jesus. Continue to break our hearts for this place. Continue to weld within us a will that bends the knee to the authority and humility of our King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.